It's my intention this morning to preach God's Word to you as it comes to us in Genesis 13. And so in preparation for, for that, we'll read from Genesis 12, and then also a passage from the New Testament from Hebrews. So Genesis 12, you have God had created the world, and then there was the fall into sin, and then what we see is that God, He was working with the, whole, the, the, the people as a whole, but now we see Him working individually with just one man, particularly Abraham, and we see that with His call. So hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's sons, and all their possessions and they had ga- that they had gathered, and, they, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the, la- the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the Terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarah, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say, you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. So far from Genesis 12, let us now go to the New Testament, to Hebrews 11. 
kind of the hall of fame of faith, you could, you could say. Hebrews 11. And from Hebrews 11, we'll read verses 8 through 16. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars and the sky and the multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises." But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have, an, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So far, the reading of God's Word. And now let's turn to the text, which is Genesis 13. Genesis 13, then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they, uh, that they may dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was, a, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go right. If you go go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plains 
plain of of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever." And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the Terebeth tree of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. So far, the reading of God's word. After the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing together from hymn 36, uh, all stanzas. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder if you've ever found yourself somewhat bewildered by the promises of God. And by that, I don't mean being bewildered in the sense of that a holy God could show so much mercy and grace to you. But I mean bewildered in the sense that you see this seeming unbridgeable gap between the promises of God and the reality that you experience. Sometimes it happens that the promises of God just seem so out of touch with our lives. So brothers and sisters, what do you do? What do you do when the promises of God don't measure up to reality? When rather than the belief in the sure promises of God, your faith seems to be the belief in the uncertain promises of God. Congregation, our text this morning is about a saint who knew this struggle all too well. God had started a a new beginning with Abraham. His good creation had been corrupted by the fall into sin. And the corruption had spread even after the flood. And so Abraham was this new beginning for God's people. But this new beginning required believing, it required trust in God's promises. God called Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, which we read in in Genesis 12. And he made these amazing promises to him. He said, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God gave these amazing promises to Abraham. And then a few verses later, he goes to that promised land, and what happens? 
There's a famine, a severe famine. And so we start to see Abram's very real struggle of trusting God in the face of unfulfilled promises. Well, our text this morning is a continuation of that story. And although our passage is a story of of separation and even devastating choices, it's also a count of the certainty of God's promises and the surety of His presence in the lives of His people. Where in the ups and downs of our lives, God confirms His promises to us. And we see that in this passage. God confirms Abram's growing faith with the riches of His promises. And that is our theme this morning. God confirms Abram in his growing faith with the riches of his promises. And to flesh that theme out, we'll see, we'll see three things. Firstly, the test of riches. And then we'll see the lot of riches. And then finally, the expansion of God's rich promises. So our text begins, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. So earlier, Abram's faith had been tested by poverty and found wanting. As we read together, after settling in the land of promise, Canaan was hit with a famine, a severe famine. And so Abram goes down to Egypt and he tries to manipulate the situation in Egypt to stay safe. God intervenes, he plagues Pharaoh's house. And he delivers Sarai and Abram from the patriarch's poor choices. Abram's failings would not thwart God's plan for him. And so how does Abram respond to that? So he went to Egypt. And he didn't act very faithfully before God. He didn't trust God. And now, how does he respond? Well, our text tells us that he retraces his steps. In chapter 12, he went from, from Bethel into the Negev to Egypt. So it's just a continuing direction south. And now in our, in our passage, so he goes, he goes as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been from beginning. So he goes back to Bethel. So he goes from Egypt to the Negev up to Bethel. And that was where the, God first appeared to him. He returns to the place where he had first built an altar to God. We read that in verses 3 to 4. It was in Bethel that Abram built an altar and actively pursued a relationship with God. He called upon the name of the Lord, as the text tells us, in 12 verse 8. So Abram, in, in Genesis 13, he's going back to square one. He goes back to Bethel, and there again he calls on the name of the Lord. We read that in verse 4. And later on, at the, at the end of the passage, in Mamre, he does the same thing. He builds an altar to the Lord and he calls on the name of the Lord. So what we see is everywhere that he goes now, he's actively orienting his life around the worship of God. He's centering his life on the worship of God. But Abram's very active faith is set in stark contrast to Lot's seemingly passive faith. The text is virtually silent about Lot's relationship with the Lord. If you look at chapter 12, verses 8 to 9, and chapter 13, verses 3 to 5, there is no explicit mention 
of Lot participating in the worship of the Lord. He was present with Abram. He went wherever Abram went. If Abram went one way, Lot went with him as well. But he doesn't seem to give too much attention to the God that his uncle served. And if he did have a relationship with God, it seems that it was a bit of an afterthought. To put it differently, Lot went to church because his uncle went to church. He listened to the Bible reading at at the devotion times around the dinner table, but he, he never did his own. He believed, but his faith was very passive, or so it seems. And their relationship with God is very important to take note of. Because their sojourn down into Egypt had made them rich. You see, despite Abram's unfaithfulness, by the mercy of God, he he had received and amassed great riches from Pharaoh. We read that Pharaoh, for, for her sake, that is Sarah, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. He had amassed great riches. And not only did he amass livestock, but also our text tells us that it was silver and gold. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He was rich. And he wasn't alone in his riches. His nephew Lot also benefited from their little sojourn to Egypt. Verse 5, Lot also had flocks and herds, and tents. So together they had amassed a lot of wealth. So if you look at chapter 12, Abram was tested with famine and the possibility of poverty. And now here he faces a very different test, the test of riches. And brothers and sisters, this is why their relationship with the Lord is so important. Because it influences the way that Abram responds to those riches and the way that Lot responds to those riches. The wealth they had received was from the merciful hand of God, but it also presented a challenge to their faith. Things were going well for them. And so they, were, they had the very real danger for them to leave their relationship with God to the side because of the riches that they had which is what Lot seems to do. It was tempting for them to think that they didn't actually need God anymore, that they didn't really need to trust Him. I mean, they had all this stuff. They were fine. It was tempting for them to think like that rich man in in Luke 12, to say to themselves, Saul, you have plenty of goods laid up for many years. Just relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. And in all of that, to leave God behind. And so this text presents ourselves with a very important question. And the question we must ask ourselves is this, what is our relationship with God like? Because if things are going well for you, has it changed your relationship with God? Has it changed your dependence on God? Has it changed your need for God? Because we face the very, the very same temptation that Abram and Lot faced. 
We face the temptation to abandon our dependence on God because, because things are going well with our finances, because things are going well with our business ventures or our marriages or our friendships or etc., whatever it is. But ultimately, it's our relationship with God that will determine whether or not we respond faithfully to the blessings that we receive from God. So they were rich, but soon their wealth becomes a problem. They were so rich that there wasn't enough space for these small communities to dwell peacefully with each other. Verse 5 Verse 5 and 6 says, Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. And then it says, Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for the possessions were so great that it could not, that they could not dwell together. The land could not support them. Literally, it could not lift them up. That's how heavy they were with riches. And then things were only made worse by the fact that you had other nations in the land as well. It said the Perizzites and the Canaanites were in the, in the land. And so, in natural course of events, a quarrel breaks out between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. But as soon as the peace is disturbed, we see Abram swiftly taking action to prevent a family feud. He says, let there no, be no strife between me and you, for, for we're kinsmen. Separate yourself from me. If you take the land in the left, I'll go to the right. So he realized that something had to be done. He realized that there just wasn't enough pasture land to go around for the two of them to, to peacefully coexist. They had to part ways. But what is interesting is that Abram doesn't assert his privileges as the patriarch, as the head of the household. What we see is actually that's, that Abram is acting very selfless, selflessly here. Because as patriarch, Abram was well within his rights to, to assert his entitlement of the land, the best part of the land. So he was the leader of the clan, and so he could have simply told Lot, he could have said to Lot, sorry, this is just not working out, we're just going to have to separate you're going to have to go. I'm sorry. But this, we just have to sort this out. He could have tried to, to forge his own destiny by taking matters into his own hands, which is what he did in, in chapter 12. And he could even justify it by saying to himself, look, God gave me the promises. He promised me this land, so I better make sure I, I get it. I, I am well within my rights to take that land. But he doesn't. Here we see Abram growing in his faith. Instead of trying to manipulate the situation so that he can, he can retain the land, he leaves the outcome to the Lord. He selflessly grants Lot the opportunity to pick first. He gives Lot the opportunity to pick first. So the ball is in Lot's court. The proposition is, is put forward to him. And now he has to make his choice. Look around you, Lot, Abram says. The land is before you. Just, just take your pick. Take your pick. It's as if the world is at his fingertips. All he has to, de has to do is decide what, what part he's going to take. Now, although there were inhabitants in the land, which is what it says in verse 7, 
he did have some options. Lot could have gone, to, gone north to the fertile hill country of Ephraim, or he could have gone a bit south to the hill country of Judah, which is probably what Abram had in mind. But Lot had other ideas. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, And Lot lifted his eyes, and he saw all the plain of the Jordan Valley. He lifted his eyes towards the direction of Zoar, and he saw this magnificent piece of land, the Jordan Valley. Now the fact that Lot was looking that direction, the fact that he was looking at the Jordan Valley does not not necessarily mean that he was being unfaithful in this. The Jordan Valley wasn't really off limits. In fact, later on in Israel's history, God shows Moses the promised land, which he swore to Abraham, and he says to him, we read there in in Deuteronomy 34, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar, which is the same place that Lot was looking at. And moreover, in Numbers, God tells Moses that the southeast border of the promised land shall go down to Jordan, and its limit shall be at the Salt Sea. We read that in Numbers 34, verse 12. So whether whether or not Lot was looking at the edge of the promised land, or possibly just beyond the promised land, it's rather hard to say from our text. But brothers and sisters, that's the whole point. If Lot wanted to stake his claim in the promised land, he wouldn't have chosen a place so close to the edge of it. Essentially, what Lot was trying to do was have one foot in the promises and then one foot in the riches that were offered to him by the Jordan Valley. And who could blame him? The Jordan Valley was was prime real estate. Lot lifts up his eyes and he sees this amazing landscape. He sees a land so fertile that we're told it looked like the garden of the Lord. It looked like paradise. It looked like even the fertile Nile Delta of, of Egypt. And so if you put yourselves in Lot's shoes, he's a nomadic herdsman. Well, this is, this is payday. This is the best. The land was something out of travel brochures. It, had, it meant for him less time for work and more time for play. This was a, a land of opportunity for him where he could, get, he could amass for himself riches. Lot saw here a place that no other land seemed to offer him. He saw paradise. But despite how lovely and delightful this place was, there's something more sinister going on here. And that's what the, the author, the Holy Spirit just gives us a hint of that. Yes, it looked like the garden of the Lord. Yes, it looked like Eden. But brothers and sisters, what happened in Eden? Well, mankind fell into sin. And what happened? It was through seeing something that looked delightful to the eyes and taking it. He lift, Eve lifted up her eyes and saw that the fruit was good. Or think of... Think of Egypt. Yes, it looked like the well-watered Nile Delta, the place of no famine. 
But what just happened in Egypt in chapter 12? Egypt was the land of compromise. Egypt was where God had to deliver Abraham from his unfaithful choices. And then we're told, parenthetically, in sort of brackets, we're told, oh, by the way, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Beloved, there was a snake in Lot's paradise. Verse 13, it tells us that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked, were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So Lot was getting the best possible land, but he was getting the best possible land with the worst possible neighbors. Sodom and Gomorrah, as as you may recall, was a city of great sexual perversion. They celebrated what was bad and they slandered what was good. We read from Ezekiel that they were proud, that they were full of excess food, that they were numb by their prosperous ease, they were haughty, they were selfish. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it, to the society that we live in now. And yet somehow, somehow, none of that factored into Lot's decision. Lot fancied that he was in paradise, but in reality he was a stone's throw from hell. Brothers and sisters, there's a warning here for us. Because the grass is almost always greener when we're looking towards the world. Satan will often present us a path of least resistance. A path that seems to promise us the same things, but without the suffering, without the need to trust God, without the need to to believe God, to, to cling to His promises. So if you find yourself, if you find yourself presented with an opportunity that promises you paradise, but the offer comes at an expense of your relationship with God, you can be sure that that voice comes with a hiss. You see, like Lot, we often, we often try to walk the borders of sin. We often try to sit, sit on the gray zone, you could say. We try to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and try to balance the two. And maybe it's because we we think we can handle it. We think because our faith is is very strong, we we can withstand. Or maybe it's because we think that Bethel isn't worth all the hassle of trusting God. And so we look for the Jordan Valleys of our day, regardless of whether or not there's wicked Sodom close by. So the Spirit is warning us. He's saying, don't be fooled by simply what you see. Because the consequences can be devastating. If you remember, Lot began outside the city. He began outside the city. The text tells us at first he lived near Sodom. We read that in verse 12. And then he goes further. Then if you turn the page to Genesis 14, we are told that he's living in Sodom. And later, we're told in in Genesis 19 that he pledges his daughters to the men of Sodom. So it's that age-old situation of the frog in the the hot water. Children, you you may have heard of that explanation before. If If you put boiling water in a pan, and then you throw a frog in it, the frog's gonna jump straight out. But if you put water in a pan, you put the frog in it, and you bring that water to a boil, the water will boil to death. It won't jump out. 
And that's the power of sin. Lot thought he was getting paradise, but it ended up being an illusion straight from hell. And it was something that he would later regret. We are told in, in 2 Peter chapter, tw- uh, chapter 2 that it tormented his righteous soul. He would end up losing all his possessions, even his wife. And so this is the lot of riches. This is the destiny of making our choices just with the eyes of the flesh rather than with the eyes of faith. And we know this to be true, don't we? Sadly, many of us know this. We know this from experience. We know the seduction, that that powerful tug of sin and how tempting the desires of the flesh are. How, how tempting the desires of the eyes and the pride of life are, don't we? Many of us have followed in the ways of Lot before. We've done that once or twice or more. Making decisions based on what we see rather than by faith and dependence on God. But beloved, know that there was a descendant from Abraham who was like his great-grandfather Abraham, who walked by faith and not by sight. But unlike his great-grandfather Abraham, he did it perfectly. Congregation, our Lord Jesus Christ walked perfectly before God, walking by faith and not by sight. If you may recall, Jesus was promised the nations. We read that in Psalm 2. Kind of like Abram was promised the nations. It says in Psalm 2, Ask me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And in order to receive that glorious possession, it required Jesus to walk in humble submission to the will of God. Trusting the will of the Father even to the point of death on a cross. But then what we see in in Jesus' ministry, Satan comes along and he offers a different way. He offers Jesus another way, another way to receive those glorious promises, but without the cross, a way that didn't include the cross. And that's exactly what happened to the first Adam. The first Adam had fallen, Lot had fallen because of what was delightful to the eyes. And so Satan tries the exact same trick on our Savior. He takes Jesus, and we read that in Matthew 4, he takes him on a very high mountain, and he offers him the promised land. He offers them all the glories of the kingdoms of the earth. But to receive those glories, all he had to do was just bow down to Satan. Just bow to Satan. But what we see is Jesus turns and he walks away. Because like Abraham, he walked by faith and not by sight. And if you think of it, beloved, Jesus had every right to claim that. He was the son of God. The nation's were his inheritance. And yet, he still didn't lay claim to them. Rather, he was obedient to the Father. And through his death on the cross and resurrection, his perfect obedience, his perfect life of walking by faith and not by sight, is ours as well. He has poured out his Spirit on all of us here present. Empowering us so that we can walk by faith and not by sight. Brothers and sisters, this is your beautiful Savior. 
This is the Savior that you believe in and that you trust. And that brings us to our third point, the expansion of God's rich promises. So Lot journeyed east, and thus they they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot went off to the greener pastures. A few days earlier, Abram and Lot had been dwelling together, and now he looks up and he sees Lot walking away. Abram, Abram's choice was made with the eyes of faith, and when he was tested with prosperity, and when he was, tept, he was tempted to, to cling to an opportunity and to forge his own destiny, he doesn't. He responds in faith. He puts his, his trust in God. But now what? But now what? Lot was gone. And we can imagine Abram sitting there thinking to himself as he's watching Lot slowly move away, thinking to himself, now what? Now what? Now what about the promises of God? It's not as though Abram was indifferent to Lot. Lot was his kinsman. Lot was his family. Lot was his his loved son. Lot was Abram's orphaned nephew. He was like a son to him. And we see that fatherly affection come through not only in this passage where he he grants Lot the first pick, but we see it later on when he's interceding for Lot before the Lord. This would have felt for Abram more like an amputation than just a transaction. What would happen to the promises of God now? Now that his only son, albeit adopted son, was gone, how could Abram become the father of a great nation? And so although he acted faithfully, once again, he was faced with a situation where his circumstances just didn't line up with the promises of God. It didn't measure up. And it's in this moment, it's in this moment that God appears to Abram. After Lot separated from Abram, we read that God spoke to Abram. God speaks into Abram's life just at this moment. He had put his faith in God, and he was not going to be put to shame. God rewards his faith by renewing his promises and by expanding those promises, showing him the riches of the gifts that he's going to give to Abram. He says to him, God now says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look. Look what I'm going to give you, Abram. And don't you just love this, brothers and sisters? As one commentator highlights, it's interesting, Abram refused... To make his choice with the eyes of faith, I mean the eyes of the flesh I should say, but rather he made his choice with the eyes of faith. faith. Instead of looking up and, 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 and lusting after that beautiful land, he acts faithfully. And what's amazing is God, God comes to him and he says, Abram, look, look with your eyes, look at what I'm going to give you. Look at the promised land. He shows him this promised land, and it's huge. It's extend as far as his eyes could see in every direction, north, east, south, west. All of that land God was giving to Abram. Abram, this is for you. This is for you, and this is for your offspring. But But then what about Abram's descendants still? God had not only promised Abram land, but he also promised him descendants. He promised that he'd become a great nation. But what we see again is that God knows the concerns of Abram's heart. 
God knows the cares of his children. Abraham, he says, you're not just going to have descendants. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the sand beneath your feet. Look down, Abraham. Just look down. Can you count the dust that you're standing on? That's how great your descendants will be. And so God encourages Abram, the father of all believers, with this glorious future that awaits him. So beloved, how can we be steadfast in our faith when things seem so out of touch with reality? How can we be certain of the rich promises in the gospel when all these promises just seem so unfulfilled? Well, it's by looking at that future, that glorious future that awaits us. By clinging to these promises in faith. As Hebrews tells us, Abram died without receiving the things promised. He only greeted them from afar. He didn't see a great nation. He didn't even live in the whole land. When he died, there was no great lot, uh, uh, land allotment at his will. I mean, all he had was the burial place that he bought for Sarah. That was it. The, promise was, the promises were left unfulfilled. But congregation, today, today they have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us this in Galatians, that Jesus was his offspring. He was the promised offspring from his seed. And through Christ's death and resurrection, all who believe in Jesus Christ are now children of Abraham. They're all children of Abraham. So God promised that his descendants would be as innumerable as the stars in heaven, as the sand that is upon the shore. And all of this has, is becoming true, and it is true in Jesus Christ. Abram is truly the father of all believers. Just think of it today. We are all children of Abraham. We are all descendants of Abraham because we believe in Jesus Christ. And many more today, as they come to faith in Jesus, they are children of Abraham. And so Abram's descendants are truly like the dust upon the seashore. But what is more, through faith in Christ, there is now a glorious inheritance that awaits us as well. That promised land that God is keeping in heaven for you. A place of a new heavens and a new earth. And this is what spurs on our faith when, when things don't seem to measure up. This is what brings us hope when seeing faith just seems like a dream. This is what encourages us when we are tempted with the Jordan valleys of the world. You see, congregation, God encouraged Abram in his faith by showing him the riches of, his promise, of the promised land. He said, lift up your eyes and see. See what will be yours. And so now, brothers and sisters, as we close this sermon this morning, let's lift up our eyes together. Let's lift up our eyes and be encouraged and strengthened in our faith by gazing on the glory of what is to come. In Revelation 21, we get a picture of what is coming for us. Revelation 21. If I can just find it. One sec. Okay, Revelation 21. And listen to this. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, the Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had great high wall with 12 gates and had gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. In verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut, day or night, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter, it, enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is our future glorious inheritance that awaits us. This is what spurs us on when we look into our lives and we see things that just don't seem to measure up. So congregation, see what glorious future awaits you and have faith in God's amazing promises. Amen.